podcast doors hell. It's Kubrick's universe, the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Kubrick's universe. We join you now in the beginning of summer 2020 as the COVID-19 crisis continues to loom over all our lives and with sweeping social changes taking root, the likes of which have not been seen for a half century. Interesting times, to put it mildly. But since there's never a dull moment here in Kubrick's universe, we'd like to offer a pleasant distraction from the many challenges we're all facing these days. We're going to continue our conversation with the wonderful Kier DeLay. In today's episode, you'll hear him chat with us about how he came to work on 2001 A Space Odyssey, meeting Stanley Kubrick for the first time, his experiences on the set, and how it altered the trajectory of his career and changed his life. But Kier also shares some other really fascinating stories from his love of theater acting being involved with the first Broadway revival of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Fred Gwynn, who will, of course, forever be remembered as Herman Munster, to his first major stage role, performing with the legendary Burl Ives, as well as post-Space Odyssey screen roles he remembers fondly, including Paperback Hero and The Fox with the late great Sandy Dennis, playing Audrey Hepburn's father on screen opposite Jennifer Love Hewitt, and even his love for the inimitable Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot. In this episode, Kier also shares something very personal. It wouldn't feel right calling it an exclusive, since obtaining such a thing has honestly never been a goal of ours. Better to say it occurred naturally, within our conversation, I suppose, when he felt comfortable telling us what he did. Regardless, it was an act of generosity from Kier for which we will remain forever grateful. So, if you're safe, and at least six feet away from others, kick back, take your mask off, put your favorite earbuds in, and join us as we continue our travelogue with Kier DeLay in Kubrick's universe. Hmm, yeah. have a, a, a question from one of Europe's best Kubrick archivists, uh, a fine guy, a gentleman named Simone Odino. He, he came across some information that Stanley may have mentioned, perhaps facetiously, considering other actors for the role before you, such as George Pappard, um, Burt Reynolds, and Paul Newman, um, and... I believe there was a rumor about Warren Beatty. Did you ever hear about that, either before or after? Well, you were I didn't given hear the... about the. I, I, I have heard that there were a number of well-known people, including Warren Beatty. It's the only name that I've heard. But I, I heard. I don't remember where I heard this. That there were a lot of people, uh, a number of actors that were anxious to get that role. Yes, but the the only one I actually heard was Warren Beatty. Uh, the others may be, I'm sure that's, that's a possibility. By that time, 
I think a lot of people will be after Dr. Strangelove really wanted to work with this film. Mm. Do you recall how you felt knowing that uh, you'd gotten the part over these very well? I didn't guys? know I, that wasn't until years some years later that I oh, heard. Oh, I see. I see. I, I didn't know that. I didn't. I hadn't heard it, that. It was just I was. Um, I I heard that I was I heard I was off this role while I was doing Bunny Lake is Missing. It's one of the high points where my life really kind of lit up. I was uh, one day after work, after filming in that film, um, uh, I arrived home and my wife said, your agent call, call your agent. So I called my agent and he said, uh, of course, I had to get the time. Well, I don't remember what time of day it was because it was five hours difference from London to New York. Anyway, he said, uh, are you sitting down? I said, no, I said, you better sit down. I said, why? He said, well, when I give you the news, why you may wish you'd been sitting. I said, okay, what's what? You just been out of the blue. He said, you've just been offered the, uh, a, the leading role in Stanley Kubrick's next film. And I hadn't heard, a th- I didn't know I was being thought of. I hadn't been interviewed by anybody. Wow. It was completely out of the blue. Wow. That's the day to change a young actor's life for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I was such a Kubrick fan. I was, I was thrilled. <laughs> and, um, and I, I, my first, my first encounter with Stanley, I, um, you might, this might have muted that uh, Gary Lockwood, who played the other astronaut, um, uh, and my and Stanley would no longer willing to fly. Uh, I had flown before in my life, but I had flying made me so nervous, mm. and Gary Lockwood felt the same way, and Stanley did. In fact, mm-hmm. Stanley early in his adult life. Got a private pilot's license. Yep. Yes, he did. And as soon as he got the license, he never flew again. It's a fascinating um, little subset of his story. Yeah. So, and so the three of us would not fly. So I took, I don't remember, it was the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mary, one of the two well-known Cunard line ships from New York to, to, uh, to England. And uh, they had arranged for a, a little cottage up in the, an area called Hampstead, Hampstead Heath, mm-hmm. um, which is north of London. So it was on the, it was sort of on the way to the studios that I'd have to go to every day, which was further north. And uh, so I'm my first morning after my first night of sleep, I wake up and the phone rings, and the voice says, asks for me, and I said, "Well, this is I'm, this is I'm speaking." <laughs> and then the voice said, oh, oh, hi, this is Stanley. <laughs> that was my first encounter with Stanley Kubrick. Anyway. Wow. Well, according to our notes, uh, you had arrived on the USS United States. Now, this is, of course, well, it could just... have been. I, I, I have traveled on the U.S. United States, but I don't I don't think I don't think it was. Listen, it might have been. I, my memory was it was one of the queens, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. May have, sure. It may have been the other. 
just I, I, I get them a little confused after all these years. No, it's okay. It's, it's just a technical note that I didn't want to yeah. get uh, erroneously um, for the purpose of you know accuracy for our listeners and right. so forth. So I want to ask about the preparation you did for the role of Dr. Bowman. For example, um, do you have an inkling of what subjects uh, Dr. Bowman might have uh, studied to earn his PhDs, things like that. Oh gosh, um, you know we did have a lot of discussion. We you know, when I arrived, uh, it, it, when I arrived in England to make the film, uh, I didn't start principal photography for, for for a few weeks. You know, doing costume changes, but also with a lot of meetings with Stanley and and Gary Lockwood. The three of us would have meetings when we talk about. The, our characters and you know the detail I'm sure there was more detail than I remember but it had to do with the fact that uh, the, the, the two of us might have had double doctorates mm-hmm. in various scientific subjects and uh, the, the important I think aspect of what we discussed was not so much what our backgrounds were um, you know, uh, they, 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 we we talked about it, but I think the most important thing was the fa- was the discussion of uh, our psychological makeups, and that that we were the kind of individuals uh, who were so steady in their makeups and their psychological makeups, so down to earth and steady, that an event that would cause you and I to go screaming out of a room. <laughs> would only, in our characters, raise an eyebrow. Right, right. And that was the important thing. And, you know, and I think, you, you know, when you watch the film, you hear, there isn't a lot of dialogue, but what what dialogue there is, it's very kind of down-to-earth and straight, kind of, for the most part, unemotional. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, of course, I, I like to explain that the reason there isn't a lot of dialogue is that these two individuals, um, played by Gary and myself, have been in space for months, right. many months. And most everything on a personal nature has been talked about already. Right. I know when he where he was brought up. I know... I've heard about his family, et cetera, et cetera. And he has heard about mine. There isn't a lot to talk about except for the few things that come up having to do with running the ship and the running. And until Hal goes crazy, the, the ship, it's pretty mundane. There isn't a lot to talk about. I mean, so much so that the first bit of dialogue with, with the computer and myself is when I'm kind of scribbling. I mean, I'm kind of uh, doing a little drawing. I'm yeah. kind of doing a little sketch of one of the uh, other astronauts that's uh, in deep, well, I can't think what the word Hi- is. Hibernation but, you know, or deep sleep. Hibernation. hibernation. Deep yeah. hibernation. And he asked, oh, can I see it? So I <laughs> I hold up the sketch to the to Hal's red eye. And, uh, and that's it. That's just that's how little is going on until stuff happens. Has anyone ever brought up to you the notion that it is in fact Hal 
who is expressing more human emotion during Absolutely. the story. Well, yeah. I, I don't know. It's been, yeah, I'm sure it's been said. I've said it. I mean, I've brought it up with people. It, right. In a way, there's seemingly more personality there behind the voice than there is in Gary Lockwood's and mine. Well, when Douglas Rain returned, as you did for 2010, the scene when he's going to be disconnected and he asks, will I dream? That gets me every time. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, um, where, they, Doug Rains, of course, uh, he, he didn't do his voice. Love. It, it was pre-recorded. So we had this pre-recorded voice to work with when we shot 2010. But when we did 2001, he hadn't cast that character yet. He had gone through a lot of ideas um, uh, and didn't think any of them was why. He actually hired a British actor uh, whose name is Nigel Davenport. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And he was on the set with us for a few, for a week or so, but he, Stanley said, no, it's too British. It's wrong. So he paid him off. So he decided not to make that decision uh, until post-production. So he just turned to his assistant director. Uh, Derek Cracknell was his name. And he said, Derek, you do the voice of Hal for the boys, meaning Gary and myself. So for the rest of the film, the film, the, the voice of Hal was something like this. Oh, it's all like this. You know, I can't no. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't do that, Dave. No, it's all like this. That was the voice of Hal for us. Oh, my God. Like working with little like working with Michael Caine. Yes. Yeah. Very, very cockney. Yeah, very um, cockney. Exactly. That I'm sure you were able to get in the moment, but that must have posed a little bit of a in the moment type of. Uh, challenge. I mean, not that you would have known well, Stanley was going to be using someone completely different, a, a different voice yeah. entirely. But, um, you know, if you're on that set, I imagine you're Keir Delay in 1966 and 67, and you're seeing the magnitude of what Stanley's created just on the set in order to accomplish his vision. And, right. And he's saying, yeah, just, you know, go with it. Let, let Derek read his, you know, Hal's lines for you. It it would certainly well, require all your acting skills just right. to... Right, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, probably by the time this switch was made, because again, we had the British actor doing the lines for a week or so, but uh, then uh, when Derek Racknell did it, by that time, I was used to Derek because he was our first assistant director. So he was there every day. I always heard his voice. In fact, the whole crew was cockney pretty much. Right. Because the, the whole crew was was British for the most part. So... Yeah. You know, I sort of was used to it, and, you know, I was able to deal with it pretty easily at that point. Hmm. Do you have any recollections about the gap between the murder of Hal and then Dr. Bowman leaving the Discovery to enter the Stargate? And I ask because there is a real sense of poetry that takes over the film at that point. All the story points henceforth are left to the audience's imagination. But at the same time, there are some really practical things um, we imagine Dr. Bowman would have to do, 
like disposing of the bodies of the other astronauts in hibernation. Right. Do you recall how much thought you know, was given? It, well, we knew we, we were going to have to portray the, those actions that you just described because it wasn't it, it wasn't in the script and wasn't wasn't planned. Um, you know, after after I uh, dismantle Hal, the next time, in a sense that you see. Well, the next time you see you see the ship, a long a long shot of the ship. Uh, as I remember, hovering in the vicinity of Jupiter, isn't it? I'm trying to think. When you see it, it's a long shot of you see the ship. You don't see me, but you know I'm in it. Right. Um, but the, 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 it's the next time you see me is when I'm beginning the journey through that through time and space right. in the journey that ends up with me in that strange room in that Louis the 16th decor room. <laughs> um, and there's very little of me in a, a few shots of my reacting in wonder or awe or whatever with my mouth wide open in awe. Uh, it, sometimes it almost looks like still shots. Yes. Um, uh, you know, and that was that was that was all it was. Was it the camera? I've never had a one of the sixty. It was a you know, um, trying to remember the kind of cameras that were used in that film. But it was uh, uh, they were gigantic machines. I, I can't remember the, what the technical word was for the, for the cameras they were using. But um, they were immense close-ups. Uh, where my eye could fill. In fact, sometimes it did. It showed, you know, an immense close-up of my eyeball, mm -hmm. um, or, or or my face, and um, and what that was was just. It was no set. It was just a platform, and I was standing on a platform with a lot of light in my face mm. and a camera like right next to my face. <laughs> and, you know, I did certain reactions, uh, but, you know, there was, there was no, nothing to look at. It was just I had to use my imagination. Right. But there's very, but in that whole journey through time and space, there's very little of my face. Most of it is all those extraordinary visual effects that were, that is described some detail in the book we were just talking about. The, well, they were created with the, uh, at the time, brand new uh, invention of the slit scan technique that Douglas yeah. Trumbull had developed. Right. We had yeah. the pleasure to chat with him uh, for our show, and um, he gave us some really fascinating insight on some technical aspects of how Kubrick established the shot of your face within uh, the this the 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 windshield for lack of a better word the 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 little bubble where we can see your head and your shoulders and your forearms as you're preparing um and it, what happens with your character physically on screen is just breathtaking still to this day the 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 jarring movement and Douglas explained to us how some of that was accomplished. Um, and I believe that once 
you had mentioned doing some special kind of isometric exercises to simulate the shock uh, as you were going through the Stargate. Do you recall anything about them, and or did you come up well, with them I, yourself? I, I, there, there's a shot where I'm, I think it was used there, where I'm sort of shaking, trembling in a way, which I can do. I sort of uh, stress the muscles in my neck, and I can make my head kind of quiver very quickly you know mm. it's not quivering i can't it's just uh, it's it's like it goes into this rhythm of shaking mm. i remember doing that but um it's a little vague now the memory of of the experience except it, as i said very little of this really on my face i mean most of it were those extraordinary that journey through t- through time and space which was brilliant i think yeah. absolutely and in the pantheon of you know, iconic uh, film sequences for the viewer to be taken with you, with Dr. Bowman on that journey, not just visually, but emotionally, it is safe to say, I, I feel it's very well conveyed emotionally. And then we end up with you in that hotel room scene uh, at the end of the film. And as we yeah. understand it, <laughs> you know, there were a few scenes which uh, were photographed, which did not, of course, make it into Stanley's final edit, such as the clothes were laid out on the bed. Were there any other sequences you remember that were tried and abandoned? I don't remember. I don't even remember the scene. I guess it was done, but if, if, if the, the sequences with my clothes laid out on the bed... Uh, um, I don't. I don't know if I'm in that. Was was it filmed with me in the room with those clothes on the bed? I don't remember. I believe so. Yeah, there's a photograph. There's a photograph that shows uh, you in. I think you're in the spacesuit and you stood next to the bed and there's some folded clothes on the bed. It was probably just kind of an ad. It was probably just an idea that uh, Stanley came up with. Uh, But there is some. There is a photograph. Showing that situation, yeah. Gosh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm sure it was. Well, if you had a photograph, then it happened. But I, <laughs> I can't. I, I can't remember. It. Oh, don't worry. It's a, it's a long time ago, Kia. A long time yeah. ago. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you something about that scene, though. You might be interested. The, the, the makeup for the oldest version of me lying on the bed, reaching up for the monolith. Um, that makeup took twelve hours. It's it's understandable. I mean, when you when you achieve that effect, I, I've read that before. But uh, the the proof is in the pudding, as they say, because the special effect of you being two hundred years old, there, there's no second guessing what the viewer sees. It is what it is, and it's right there before you, and you believe it the moment you see it. As a matter of fact, Stewart the makeup man should have won the Academy Award for his best. And it, he didn't, but he should have. Um, I think, what was the Planet of the Apes won. And if you compare those apes <laughs> with, the, with the cavemen, I mean, it's just, they're, they're cartoons of apes. And, you know, his work on those suits that they... Yes. That, that, that that they uh, they were most of the they were dancers who portrayed the ape men. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this is no, this, there's no comparison. I've anyway. thought about that. I've thought about that many times over the years, and I, I'm I'm never able to immerse myself fully into it because of the sort of cartoonish aspects of the. And it's not that I don't want to go with my suspension of disbelief, but what I'm trying to say is, of course, I had already been fully ensconced in 2001. So to see right. what was accomplished with the Man Apes and Dan Richter, who was. Um, not only hired initially to become, uh, you know, the lead uh, man ape, wh- whom was called Moonwatcher, he was soon after charged by Stanley with training the entire uh, troop right. of mimes. Yep, that's right. Because I I didn't meet him. You know that was <clears throat> that's the oh, the dawn of man sequence was the last to be filmed. Mm-hmm. So I was. I was gone. I never had a chance to beat him at the time. That I've I've read that in the past, but that's that's interesting to hear. I, I'm, I've also heard um, that there were there at least discussions about shooting actual scenes with members of Doctor Bowman's family. Were do you know if any of them were shot? Because as we understand it, Roger Karras's son uh, Barclay, I believe, was his name was supposed to play Dr. Bowman's son at some point. Huh. No, I, I of course they, they, they had, uh, Gary Lockwood's parents, um, Frank Poole's parents, uh, sing happy birthday to him. And so they did cast two people for that, but they didn't know them. That, I don't remember ever. They must've, I don't remember it being discussed. Must've, they must've decided not to do it before I arrived because I don't remember hearing about that mm. at all. Well, Ann Geddes uh, portraying Gary's mom in that scene that for some reason that always stuck out with me. And then when, uh, you know, Wikipedia came along uh, years ago, I remember looking her up. She only passed away a couple years ago and she had a remarkable career. What was her name? Uh, her name, um, uh, how did I just forget it? I just said it. Um, Getty? And, and, sorry, Ann Geddes, G-E-D-D-E-S. Ann Geddes was a child actor. Yeah. I'll be darned. And at the time huh. she played Gary's mom, she was not that many years apart uh, in age. Hmm. She, I think she only passed in uh, January of 2018 or perhaps 2017. I'll be darned. I'll look her up. Yeah, yeah. Um, d- so, do you remember if in the hotel scene at the end of the film, had it ever been discussed to have you getting younger instead of older? Because some of the notes from the Kubrick at the uh, University of London archive do suggest that was floated, this idea. No, it was never discussed. Uh, I never heard about that. I mean, about that concept. I mean, when I when it got to our, our section of the film, it had already been decided that I would be getting older. And the only time I guess you could say I got younger was when the fetus appeared. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, I, well, exactly what I was going to say, because it, it may have just been notes or, you know, Stanley of course would have had a million ideas a day yeah. going through his head about possibities. So he may have just made an, a notation somewhere that 
this might be doable right. or, you know, maybe we go the other way. But then, of course, the film ends with you as the star child bringing yeah. rejuvenation to the planet Earth and, and beyond. Right. Right. So in a sense, he yep. did incorporate that because you, you, you do get ultimately to the youngest possible uh, phase of yeah, human that, life. That's really, that's a jump cut, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, did you, well, you, um, know, you know, we, I don't know if you and I have talked about it when we met personally, but <clears throat> I think that the film has one of the greatest jump cuts in the history of cinema. The and that is greatest. When, when, it, when the leading eight man, when Dan Richter uh, throws his victorious club into the air mm -hmm. and in slow motion it morphs into a space vehicle. Yeah. You know, and it, 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 well, it, it raises in slow motion, but the jump cut is it neatly jump cuts to a. Um, a space vehicle. It's a, However, it's a, it's a satellite. that space yeah. vehicle isn't. Stanley doesn't tell us this, but that space vehicle is a, a nuclear weapon in right. orbit around the Earth. It's an armed satellite. So the, therefore, the most the most ancient weapon in one jump cut becomes the most recent. And it's, as I say, the single greatest, most mind blowing. I'm not the first to say it jump cut in the history of cinema, I don't think it will ever be surpassed. Yeah, absolutely. How, how, how can you surpass that? I mean, yeah. to have Great. seen that, I imagine, in 1968, I was two years away from <laughs> coming, onto the, coming down to planet Earth myself, but the fact that, that at that time, Oda be someone who could have experienced that on screen, just just a viewer with an open mind who loved cinema. What must that have felt like? My parents got to see it. In fact, when my folks were dating, um, I, I mentioned this when I, I met you the first time, I think in 2018, my parents were, you know, too young hippies in love, and they uh, went to see 2001 on the big screen together in 1968, and they were both just so taken by it. And I'm not sure if you recall, but the first time we met, it was just before my mom's uh, 70th birthday, and you were so kind because you let me take out my iPhone and you recorded a, a personal happy birthday greeting, and I saved it for the next few months and waited until the morning of my mother's 70th birthday because she, always, she always just well frankly she had 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 a bit of a crush on you <laughs> <laughs> oh that's and, lovely and, and when she woke up on her 70th birthday I had timed it so the first message she would be getting on her iPhone was you, your voice greeting and that was just so <laughs> so kind of you hey Marge this is Keir DeLay Happy, happy 70th birthday. Oh, yeah, I do remember making the, you know, the recording. I'm glad. I'm, I'm very happy that it made her happy. That's great. Well, she's going to hear this, so thank you for letting me just touch on that one personal side note. Yeah, sure. Um, and real quick, Stevens just pointed out, I just want to get the name correct, because I did say Ann Geddes. The actress who played 
Gary's mom was Anne Gillis, and she had a very long and successful career going back to when she was even a child actress and starred in a lot of pictures. And um, I believe she only passed away a couple years ago. Okay, so there... She was an American... Was that... How do you spell Gillis? G-I-L-L? Yes, double L-I-S. Anne Gillis. And... G-I-L-L-I-S. Okay. Correct. Great. So that's just for technical stuff. Steven's going to fix that later. Thanks for letting me touch back to that. Sure. Don't like to get the wrong info out there. So um, obviously you and Gary uh, developed a friendship over the years. And um, I don't know how many times I've watched 2001 just listening to you and Gary doing the audio commentary. I find it a whole separate experience of just watching Stanley's movie by itself, because at the point in time when you two had recorded that, you must have had a very good rapport uh, as friends. But did do you recall when you two first met and perhaps like the first few times you got to hang out together? I, I don't remember literally the day we met, um, but I noticed, but, but I can tell you that we we always got along very well. I mean, it was um, a very easy-going relationship. Um, and the amazing thing is that Gary and I are very different people, personally. Mm-hmm. But we he is very West Coast. And I guess, I mean, he, I would say he says the same thing. Mm-hmm. He's West Coast, I'm East Coast. <laughs> and, you know, he was, he was a very physical person. But, but Highly intelligent guy. He went to uh, University of California, um, UCLA, actually. Mm-hmm. But he was a star athlete there. He was a quarterback yes. on the UCLA football team. Yes. But he wasn't just a dumb athlete. He was, uh, I'm sorry, that's... That's, that's okay. Just, it's a okay. Lot of in, they're intelligent. Uh, there are many intelligent Of course there are, there. of course. But, but he was not a, tem, a, a dumb version. He... he um, he is an he's an extraordinary reader. He's he's uh, he's I think an English major, and um, he's a highly intelligent guy. But you know, he brought up in a very different way. He was a kind of a cowboy, mm. and he did stock mining. In fact, before he became a, a, a such, he was a stuntman, did stunts on on horseback and westerns. Mm. And so he was in that sense very different. But we always got along very well, and. Uh, I remember one of the first social ops, but I remember we all went up, we went to see him. Oh gosh. Um, trying to think who the star was of this movie. We went to see a movie together and the movie we saw was, um, oh gosh, who was, who was the, uh, right after the civil war, he was a famous commander, uh, who got killed in action finding, uh, fighting the Indians? You know, uh, Custer, 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 General Custer, yeah, William Custer. There was a this in 1966. There was a big Hollywood movie in which he was the main character. It may have been called General Custer. I don't know if that was the name of the movie, but with a very famous actor. And I can't, you know, this is 80, 83 years old again. No, I can't come on, with the name, but. Steve. Very, very famous actor. Stephen, help us out. Was it, it was, the uh, title of it? Custer of the West, nineteen sixty. Custer of the West. Okay, that was my guess. I didn't want to get it wrong. Thank you. Uh, Who played that part? An English actor played it. Oh, Robert Shaw. 
Robert Shaw, exactly. So and it was direct, directed by uh, Robert Syadmak, who also made... Didn't he make The Killers? Uh, yeah, the, he made The Killers as well in 46. Oh, my gosh, what a great movie. A, yeah, that's oh great. Oh, my God. Yeah. Robert Shaw was a, very much a famous uh, favourite actor of mine. Uh, yeah, he was a wonderful actor. I actually... I, I, I got to... I knew him very briefly through... Uh, Irvin Kirshner directed a very small, low-budget film with who played a very well-known actress was uh, Robert Shaw's wife. Um, I can't think of her name. Whoever he was married to, they they did this very. He did a black and white, uh, very nice little film with the two of them. And that was when I got to know him a little bit um, because Kirshner, I I remained friends of Kirshner for many, many years. Uh, Through the years, he introduced me to Robert Shaw. So that was, so his wife was Mary Ewer. Robert Shaw and Mary Ewer did a film together that Kirshner directed, and I can't remember the name of it. That's called The Look of Ginger Coffee. That's right. Well done. Boy, you're quick. I'm looking this up. Thank you anyway. <laughs> well, you're still quick. Thank you. <laughs> the Luck of Ginger Coffee. Yeah. It was a wonderful little film. And um, anyway. Well, you brought up Robert Shaw and, you know, and that he's one of your favorite actors. He's mine as well. I remember sometime when I was in college watching remember his, jaws of course and i mean i i, I was going to say that i i had a a friend who was a film major at emerson college in boston which i attended and and he said he wanted to become a filmmaker after he saw jaws and we would have these wonderful lengthy conversations about the film and shaw's performance in that apart from so many others of course is just and so many others it's, absolutely it's so yes. iconic to this day and i remember after the umpteenth time I'd seen Jaws and I'd seen his scenes with Richard Dreyfus when they're comparing scars and so forth, and I thought, you know, they don't make Robert Shaw's anymore. And they still don't. I can remember, and I can't remember the circumstance. Maybe Kushner, Kushner might have had somebody who I can't remember he was there, but I, at some point, it was in England in which I had dinner with Robert Shaw and Sean Connery. Are you kidding me? And I can't remember why. I can't, I don't remember any details about the dinner. I just remember having, I was probably so overawed and meeting Sean, the, the, the two of them. I, I probably just kept quiet and listened, but I, I cannot remember except that I had dinner with them. <laughs> I, I mean, they did work together. Connery and Robert Shaw did both appear together in From Russia With Love from 63. Oh, of course. So they were together in, in at least one film that, that I can remember. I think they were old friends too. They knew each other. Knew, knew each other I think, um, or maybe I, I I don't know how they met. Well, since we brought up you know your friendship with Gary Lockwood having begun on the set of two thousand one, um, do you have any memories uh, of working or becoming friends with William Sylvester? Um, or any of the oh, other cast members? No, I, I met him uh, very briefly because when I, again, 
In fact, I actually did get to walk on the space station where they moved about the blue sweater. That set it was a very large set, and it curved because it was it was a circular space station, and uh, it kind of very gently that section was that those scenes take place, and and I may have I can't you know I can't remember for sure whether we met or whether I just walked on that set because I had taken it apart. And um, that was when I first arrived. But I, if we did meet, it was very brief because I don't really, I don't really recall meeting him. We've, we've covered so much about 2001. And of course, it's impossible to separate your storied career from Kubrick's masterpiece. But of course, you did a lot of really great work in the years that followed 1968. And one of the interesting gems that was uh, brought back into the public consciousness after uh, the internet was a little TV show called The Star Lost. Oh, that was, yeah, that was a, um, a television series um, that was filmed in Canada, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, God, with a well-known science fiction writer who created the idea i can't think of his name either harlan ellison oh harlan, harlan ellison, ellison yeah. of course yeah but it, it, it wasn't anything i <laughs> he made them take his name off the, the series he didn't like what they did with it earth ship arc man's greatest and final achievement out of control drifting through deep space over 800 years into the far future its passengers descendants of the last survivors of the dead planet earth locked in separate worlds their destination long forgotten heading for destruction unless three young people can save the star lost pilot for that series i got to work with Sterling Hayden, who's one of the few, you know, um, very few actors, he being one of them, however, I mean, very few actors ever worked with Stanley twice. Right. But he did. He was in The Killing, mm-hmm. called The Killing, we, and then in, Doc, in Dr. Strangelove, of course, Peter Sellers was the other actor who was in two films. I think they're the only major uh, character actors. Uh, actually, in, in the Paths of Glory, uh, the um, one of the three men that's executed. Joe, Tur- Joe Turkel, yes. Uh, it, it was used in another, he, he, he appeared in, he, play, he appeared in The Shining as, as in, in, uh, as a, as a, a waiter dressed in red. Yes, he's, uh, he's Lloyd the bartender. And in fact, he's also in, um, The Killing. He is one of only, yeah, there are two, there are two actors, not prominently known as character actors. Um, although Joe Turkel certainly is, and we had the, privilege of uh speaking with him and let me tell you the guy is uh 92 93 and sharp as attack it was one of the most fun uh afternoons i think we had interviewing him because he he remembered everything we had to i had to keep up with him it was like you know a boxer going into the ropes and he's just a great raconteur and um 
he, he was so kind to speak with and us, but he, he was in The Killing, yep, and then Paths of Glory, and then he appeared as Lloyd the Bartender, which is considered a very iconic performance. I mean, it's ubiquitous in popular culture, especially with, you know, today's horror movie fans. But there was another actor, Philip Stone, who played uh, Malcolm McDowell's father in Clockwork Orange, and he is in Barry Lyndon, and he is also, oh. what's, what's the third one? Stephen, uh, the Shining is it? Is uh, Delbert oh, of course, Grandin. of course. Yeah. What am I thinking? He is <laughs> he is the butler in the red bathroom, um, and it, it, it's one of those little fascinating pieces of trivia that come up over the years of one being a devotee of of Stanley and his his craft, his 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 legacy of art. To say, oh my gosh, that's right. There were only two actors who were in two films with leading roles, but there were also Two actors who, you know, appeared in three Kubrick films, although not as prominently. Yeah. And, and can I point out, there's a, a major uh, leading player that we've uh, that we haven't yet mentioned, Kirk Douglas. Oh, of course, he did, t- he did, he did too. Kubrick that's films. right. That's right. Of course. So, I believe uh, we were we were going to talk about uh, your career after 2001. And yeah. Oh, yeah. You you mentioned Star Lords. If I, I'll just mention. <clears throat> A couple of um, works that I did, which I'm particularly proud of. Um, actually, I'd forgotten, but there was a film I made after I shot 2001, but before 2001 was released. Because it took so long, you know, it took two years for mm-hmm. 2001 to be released from the time it was filmed. And because, um, you know, filming began in 1995. I mean, in in uh, 65. 65. I yeah, and then was released in ninety in sixty eight. Um, in between those points, I did a film with um, uh, oh God, um, it's called The Fox. Oh, I love The Fox. It, yeah, um, that's a great that movie. With that wonderful actress, so she's so great. She passed away too recently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not the British actress, uh, American actress. I can't think of you know the two women that have that relationship in the film. Oh, Sandy Dennis. And Sandy Dennis. Sandy yeah. Dennis, I love right? Working with Sandy Dennis, and, and that was done. That was a first directorial uh, product. Uh, Mark Rydell, and he did. There's another well-known film about. With a, a well-known singer, oh, Bette Midler. Mm. Yes, yeah. He was it the Rose? A, a my... Yeah, that was his as well. The yeah. Rose, yeah, that was his also. Yeah, I'll talk to you about it. And if you're interested, that you want are interested in other parts of my career. My high points are films like 2001 and David and Lisa, but also uh, the high points of my acting life has been on uh, on stage uh, and. Um, I guess the role of my dream, I was in the first Broadway revival of Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, with um, the very, and it was the first, broad, there never had been a revival. It was the first revival of that. It's since been revived by other, other productions on Broadway, but this is the first with uh, Elizabeth Ashley playing Maggie the Cat, and she was she was nominated for a Tony. She should have won, mm. I think. I mean, I was um, maybe biased. And the 
playing Big Daddy was um, Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn was brilliant. He was, uh, my first Broadway show was with Burl Ives. I could tell you. Are you kidding Burl me? Burl Ives, nice, he was good, at, but he couldn't touch the acting ability of Fred Gwynn. Mm. There's uh, a huge difference. I believe and you. also, people always thought of Big Daddy, they had to have a fat man. Well, Big Daddy doesn't refer to girth. Nothing mm-hmm. to do with size. Mm-hmm. It's like the Oriental, number one son, number two. That's right. what Big meant. Right. The Big Honcho, you know, and, and Fred Gwynn was six foot seven, but he mm-hmm. was very skinny. And he was brilliant. And so 35, oh, about six years, six, six or seven years ago, I was asked to play in a, uh, in a uh, production of Cat on the Hudson Roof. I played in the original with Elizabeth Ashley. I played the part that Paul Newman did in the movie. I played Brick, the right, son. Right. And then uh, about four, about years ago, probably, they have every year a Tennessee Williams Festival mm-hmm. in Cape Cod in, in Provincetown. Oh, of course. Uh, on the Cape. And they did a production of uh, Cabin on the Roof, and I played Big Daddy. You played Big Daddy. How I played Big Daddy. And <laughs> that, that, for me, was the... Uh, in terms of the role, it was the most meaningful and the hardest and the most satisfying mm. to play that role. It's, it's and, not a role I ever thought I'd be cast in, not in a million years. But and in a sense, I, you came full you, circle with Tennessee Williams. Well, play. yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I, you know, you've heard of people referring, uh, use the word to channel, channel someone. Of course. Well, I channeled Fred Gwynn. I didn't copy him. <laughs> but I channeled him <laughs> and Fred Gwynn's spirit. You know, I did my own performance, but it was Fred Gwynn's right. spirit. I get it. It was alongside it. And, and that's why it was such a high point. The other, other film that I mean, I did, I've done a number, a number of other films and, um, that I don't know if I was as proud of them as other films that I've done, but there's one that I love doing that nobody hardly ever saw outside of Canada. It 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 broke the it it broke at its time it broke the box office record of Canadian films in Canada, and it was released in the United States while I was doing Cat on the Hot Tin Roof with Elizabeth Ashley, but it didn't do anything. It had a tiny distribution and it totally got lost. It had a, it never really ever got a got a chance uh, in America. But it was a film that I loved doing, and it was, um, you can see the film for nothing on YouTube. It's there. You can see the whole film on YouTube right right now. And it, it's called, the name of the film is called Paperback. Paperback Hero. Paperback Hero. Paperback Hero. Now, there was another film that was made much more recently with that title. So if you Google it, that'll probably become, unless you get the the release date right, and you put that in, and you'll get the right film. But right. It, it was released in nineteen. It was released in nineteen. It was made in seventy two. It was released in seventy three or four. Oh, no. oh, it's not a oh. 
That's what they call hooking. Hooking. Hey. How come you never fight back? You're just too big, I guess. You never get pissed off at me, do you? Why should I? Oh, hell, hundreds of thousands of reasons. I go off with some broad and try to screw her and I come back to you and... Look, getting mad isn't going to change that. Well, I guess you just don't love me, that's all. Rick, let's get out of here, okay? Why? Because my ass is freezing to this ice. Are you familiar with the singer Gordon Lightfoot? Are you kidding me? My father okay. knows how to play every Gordon Lightfoot song on guitar. Well, I'm I'm an, <laughs> I am a real Gordon Lightfoot fan, like you can't believe, and I was already when the film was made. And wow, the, the original title was going to be "The Last of the Big Guns," but they got Gordon Lightfoot to re-record. If you could read my mind, if you remember that, of song. course, I, I, only too well. Long. He re-recorded it. And uh, it, there is a phrase in it, just like a paperback hero in the song. And that's where they got the title from, Paperback Hero. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old-time movie about a ghost from a wishing well in a castle dark. Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see If I could read your mind, love What a tale your thoughts could tell Just like a paperback novel The kind the drugstore sells When you reach the part Where the heartaches come The hero would be me Heroes often fail And you won't read that book again Because the ending just too hard to take Oh my gosh, and, I've never made that connection. The, and that's where the name... You've never seen the film, have you? I, I'm sad to say I have not because I didn't know it well, was on I, YouTube. Well, how would you? You, it, you know, you never... It's not anywhere. I walk away Like a movie star Who gets burned in a three-way street Into number two A movie Play the scene of bringing all the good things out in me. But for now, love, let's be real. I never thought I could act this way, and I've got to say that I just don't get it. I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone, and I just can't get it back. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. 
Just like an old time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet If you read between the lines You'll know that I'm just trying to understand The feeling that you have I never thought I could feel this way And I've got to say that I just don't get it I don't know where we went wrong But the feeling's gone I just can't get it back And I won't tell you any more because it's it's I'm very proud of the the whole film and it was a wonderful experience it was a very low budget it was a little like making David Lisa in terms of uh, the intimacy of it mm. it was filmed in Saskatchewan uh, uh, in in uh, outside of Saskatchewan, the, right. you know the, uh, the well, the main city there is, is Saskatoon is the name of the city in Saskatchewan, Canada. That's where it was filmed, and um, uh, oh, it, and it's a, it's also a role that I would never that I was ever cast in. It is a completely, I mean, I would I'm the most unlikely choice. If you were <laughs> casting the film, I'll tell you no more than that about it. But oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another film which is she was also go along with the general subject matter that this whole conversation is about, which is two thousand one, is the film I made in between um, Bunny Lake and two thousand one. It was Madame X with Lana Turner. All right. I played her son, where that's why it's called Madeline X. It's a whole, I mean, you see my character at the very beginning of the film as a little boy, and obviously I didn't play that. But years later, I'm a, um, a young, just new law student, graduated with a just new, brand new lawyer, and um, I get my first chance uh, to represent somebody, and it's, it's, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? So a lawyer with that works for her people can't afford lawyers. I can't think what the public defender. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, well, there's this woman who through a long series, the Lana Turner's character through a series of unfortunate circumstances, uh, find herself in life situations, each life situation becoming worse than the last. And finally, she, in, the, in, in one of the last circumstances that she's in with uh, Burgess Meredith, she is responsible for his death. And there's a murder trial. And she gets a public defender, which is me. Little do I know that she is my mother. But I don't know that. Oh my goodness! And and it, it, she hasn't been in a mother's position since I was a little boy, and the the film explains why she had to give up her life and disappear at that time. And then she goes through all these 
various lifetimes in a sense and ends up with this murder trial and I'm her I'm her defender just defending my own mother and not knowing it in blazing headlines and sensational trials she faced the world as Madame X producer Ross Hunter and the star Lana Turner of Imitation of Life and Portrait in Black combine talents to bring you another deep emotional experience. A triumph of acting for Hollywood's most glamorous star. What do you want? The death of Holly Anderson. Ross Hunter presents Lana Turner as Madame X. Co-starring John Forsythe as Clay, loving, handsome, rich. But he was never there when she needed him most. Where have you been? Where have you been? It's fair enough. Ricardo Montalban as Phil, who tempted her. Why, you contemptible, rotten... Contemptible, rotten what? Never end on a dangling insult. Please let me go. If you promise not to leave. Constance Bennett as Estelle, who betrayed Madame X. You're an unfit mother guilty of adultery. No. I'll fight you with every breath in my body before I'll let you take my child. You have no child. Burgess Meredith as Dan, who degraded her. What do you want me to say, Dan? The truth. Tell him who you are. Betty Miller. Drunken <laughs> And Keir DeLay as Clay Jr., star of David and Lisa, who came to her defense. My client doesn't ask for her life. I ask it. any longer. I killed Dan Sullivan. Oh, I have to see that. I'm I'm embarrassed oh. I haven't I haven't seen that. It no, sounds it's, it's, it's not a well known film, but it's uh, I I'm I'm quite pleased with how it came out. So you know what I noticed it, on a side note? It, it's just another little strange coincidence, but of course, you um, played the Marquis de Sade. And oh, God. Not one of my favorite films, but it's anyway. It's okay. I know. I know. I wasn't bringing it up for oh. that. I, I was, when I, the last time I watched David and Lisa, um, that creepy neighbor character uh, with all the shrunken heads. There's a scene when he speaks about when he, when he shows a whip and he s- says that it it may have belonged to Marquis de Sade. Oh God, I've forgotten that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know what else? I just want to go back to David and Lisa because I did watch it again last night, and there's there's an amazing film that can never be remade from 1932, directed by Todd Browning, who did the first uh, English version of Dracula, and his second film was called Freaks. Have you ever seen that movie? No, no, I haven't. It uses actual circus freaks. I mean... Oh, pe- oh yes, I think I... Yeah. And the, the, yeah. Scene, the scene at the train platform... Well, isn't there a, well, who's the director of that? T- Todd, Todd Browning. 
you know, Todd Browning. Anyway, yes, I, I don't know if I, I think I've heard about it. I don't know if I saw it, seen it, but I think I heard about it. There were two moments in uh, David and Lisa that occurred to me um, it had to be nods to freaks. And one of them is the scene when you and the other students at the school, the other kids at the school, are, uh, you know, taunted by the husband and father, and he takes his wife and daughter away. And oh, yeah. you, you kind in of. In the band, railroad station. In the railroad station, and you band together. Who's that girl? Whoever she is, she's very rude. Holly, golly, golly, holly. Golly, holly, holly, golly. She's nuts. Must be from that school. Teachers, holly, 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 golly. Damn it! What the hell do you think you're doing? You want to punch in the jaw? Touch me! Excuse her, please. She was admiring your family. She's not normal. If you're normal, who wants to be normal? Come on, David. Let's go. I'm waiting for the train outside. Bunch of screwballs! Spoiling the town! Bunch of screwballs spoiling the town. Bunch of screwballs spoiling the town. Bunch of screwballs spoiling the town. A bunch of screwballs spoiling the town. And that, I, I mean, I've seen Freaks a hundred times. It's one of my favorite films. And huh. it immediately struck me that this was a bit of an homage. And then later, when you're, the other is when you're uh, speaking with the, the psychiatrist, you mentioned seeing uh, a circus freak show and the, your character describes seeing the half man, half woman. Yeah. And in right. Freaks, and in Freaks, there is a real uh, half man, half woman, um, not not makeup. Oh my gosh, I can't remember. The, it was the, both the name of the character and the name of the real life person. And one half of their body was uh, muscular, like uh, a man who like goes man. to a gym, who goes to a gym, and full right. biceps. And the other half is. Uh, you know, entirely feminine and hmm. has, has one breast, which your character describes seeing in the character uh, or seeing it at, right. at the freak show. Have you ever been to a freak show? In a circus? A couple of times when I was a kid. I went once when I was about eight. Tell me about it. There was this person, George Georgina. Half man, half woman. Half of it's... <laughs> it's his face. I had a beard on it. The other half was smooth. And it had a breast on one side, too. And I got so scared. 
I yelled and I ran right out of the tent. I remember lots of times my mother used to tell people how George Georgina scared me. They used to laugh. Because it wasn't funny to you? Well, I was just a little kid. It wouldn't bother me now. And there are all these weird little, you know, but fascinating synergies. And anyway. It really is a great film, isn't it? Um, uh, David and Lisa. And I was really surprised when I... So so great. when I was reading about the uh, the, Os- the two Oscar nominations he got in '62, yes, and, and and what competition it was up against that that year. I mean, unfortunately, it lost to um, to Kill a Mockingbird for right. screenplay and Lawrence of Arabia for director, wasn't it? Yeah, I think. Thank you so very much. The nominees for the best screenplay, based on material from another medium, are. Eleanor Perry, David and Lisa, Robert Bolt, Lawrence of Arabia, Vladimir Nabokov, Lolita, William Gibson, The Miracle Worker, Horton Foote, To Kill a Mockingbird. The envelope, please. The winner is Horton Foote for To Kill a Mockingbird. The nominees for Best Achievement in Directing are Frank Perry for David and Lisa, Pietro Germi for Divorced Italian Style, David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia, Arthur Penn for The Miracle Worker, Robert Mulligan for To Kill a Mockingbird. Please. David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia. That's uh, unbelie- an unbelievable year. For, uh, didn't, Warren, didn't Warren Beatty get a, uh, either a nomination or win? I can't remember. Well, oh, oh, the same year. In that best year. Act, best actor. Would that not have been uh, O'Toole for Lawrence of Arabia, maybe? No, Peter O'Toole never won Best Actor, believe yeah, it or not. Did he not? He yeah, never no, did, but no. Warren Beatty. I thought Warren Beatty. What was the first? Oh, would that have been, would that have been Splen- Splendor in the Grass? Glass? Splendor uh, in the Grass. Yes. Yeah, yes. that was around that time. Yeah. But that was around that time. It could have been the same year. I don't remember, but wow. I think maybe it was. And and also and also Kia that year uh, for best screenplay with. Um, with David and Lisa, uh, Nabokov's Lolita was also in the running for best screenplay. Oh my gosh! In, in the same year as David and Lisa. Amazing! Yeah. Wow. Huh? Who picked <laughs> Lolita? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what was that? What was that like to realize that one of your foot, well, your second film, um, was actually Oscar nominated? What did that feel like? I'd forgotten. I, 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 you know, I. Because I wasn't at the Oscars that year, so um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I have since, but I, I don't think I was that aware at the time. You know, I did get I did get two awards myself. I got a Golden Globe for best promising newcomer. I can't remember how they phrase it, but there is a Golden Globe. I don't know if they still give it, but in those days, they had a Golden Globe for most. Promising newcomer. Ah. 
Wow. Yeah, and I got it's up in my in my office. I, I have a Golden Globe. Wow. Dave and Lisa, and, and I also got Best Actor at the San Francisco Film Festival. Oh, for for this for the same film again for that. Yep. Yep. For Dave yeah. and Lisa. Yep. Wow. Des- deservedly so. Yeah, what a breakthrough that was. Yeah. The 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 physical aspects of your performance are just as important as any word you say, any line of dialogue. And the way you carry David is on the one hand, you know, very measured, not robotic, but measured and observant. And at the same time, it's also deeply, deeply human. I remember there's a scene when, when you, David and Lisa are doing the rhyme and the the scene when you say I don't want to rhyme anymore and she's she's referencing snow and ice and then the word sand comes into it now I'm just throwing this out there because what happens at the epiphany in the final scene is you use a word that rhymes with sand when you say take my hand oh right <laughs> oh my gosh yeah yeah, that was that. Little did we know when we made that how important that whole facade of the of the Philadelphia Art Museum would become with Sylvester Stallone in his first right. film. Right, right. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, right. Same That's when I let me. You know, that's at the top of those steps. Oh, I didn't realize. Exactly yeah. the same doorway and steps that where because that's where I that's where Lisa is when I oh my look goodness for her. wow so you and you and Rocky was in was literally in the same place wow exactly in the same spot wow for a most important for such an important scene yeah and uh, truly and of course that scene became iconic and uh, you know Bill Conti's you know, piece of music was actually a hit single on the top 40 yeah. charts. Yeah. yeah. That scene of him. And I believe that was Stallone's only Oscar. I, I forget if he won for best screenplay. I think he might have got screenplay. Yeah. He did. He, he did. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing about David and Lisa, which I was thinking about um, over the last few days is – it's, it, it's, there's a certain amount of tension in the film, but there isn't actually an antagonist. We, you normally get an antagonist in a film, but kind of, I suppose maybe the David's mother is a, a slight antagonist, but not a major one. So I guess David is kind of, I was seeing David as not only the protagonist, but the antagonist, his, his own antagonist. You know, if you think about it, he's the, attack, the antagonism is within him. I'm not too many. I'm not too. I'm sorry. I'm not too familiar with how many other uh, scores that he wrote for movies, but um, the composer's name was Mark Lawrence, and I, I I don't know what else he did. But gosh, if that music doesn't suit the visuals and everything else about that movie that works so well.
and, and actually, it's a love story, isn't it? It is. I, I, it is a love story. It's yeah. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, just a side, it's nothing I talk about very much, but it's, 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 we're having such a, in a sense, a personal discussion here over over everything. Um, I, I absolutely, I, I fell in love with Janet Margolin, but, you know, I, it never, it, I was, I was married at the time that marriage came to an end, but I was married at the time and I, I didn't have the courage to, to end it or whatever, if that's what I, I hate to, you know, it's just, it wasn't a marriage it was meant to be, but I just couldn't find, I didn't have the guts to kind of end it. Yeah. Um, so if the film was over, I had to kind of completely shut off, shut myself off from Jenna Margolin because it was too much of an experience. It was such, it, it, from my point of view, it was all or nothing. And unfortunately, it couldn't be all. So I had to end up with, I had to create nothing at the end. But, but, um, it was, but I can, I mean, <laughs> having fallen in love with her, it sure worked for the film. Yeah. I'll say. Wow, that's 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 really nice of you to share that with us. Um, and I mean, it's I've never ever mentioned this publicly ever to anybody. But um, thanks, Kier. It's the fact. It's it's the fact. Yeah. Thanks, Kier. I mean, from the heart. That's you know, on our behalf. You know, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Well, I, I'll tell you that you know it's it's not hard to imagine how you'd have fallen into that position at all because I fall in love with her every time I watch the movie. I'm not exaggerating. She went on to you know she had uh, a very successful. She was very happily married to a, quite a well-known actor whose name you uh, he had his own television series. I can't. I can't remember his name. I never met him, but I know they had a very successful and happy marriage. Of course, she came to an end because she um, she died too young. She yeah. had uh, oh, she ovarian, ovarian cancer. cancer. Yeah, she was only yeah, fifty. And which is yeah, but she and I had a discussion. Of, I must tell you, we years afterwards, uh, long after. Uh, I mean. I, I, this could have been maybe in, I, I could have been in, in my sixties at the time. We had uh, 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 we got together over an idea that um, had to do with a concept of these two people meeting again years later. Oh wow! David and Lisa meeting again. Years later, I think my character was going to be a psychologist and so on. And we, we, and that we, we, I contact, I was able to contact her and she thought it was a wonderful idea. And you, you, you may not know, or you, I'm sure you do know, but, but that, that David Lisa was an adaptation from a book called Lisa, Lisa and, David and David. Yes. By a, by a, or I Ruben, a, a MD psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. He was a psychiatrist. So I contacted him, and he um, he agreed. It was a wonderful idea. The idea was we were gonna he was gonna write a screenplay or a, or a novel, and then adopt the screenplay. I can't remember the details of what we were gonna do, 
but he thought it was a wonderful idea, and he ultimately did write a book that was released as a book, but not as a film, because Frank Perry, at the time, would not give the screenwriter. He owned the screenwriter and would not give the screenwriter for the idea. But the idea was that Janet and I would play ourselves or those characters 20, 30 years later, meaning oh, under certain circumstances. And, and he wrote the book. It exists. I can't even remember what the book is called, but if you, if you Google uh, uh, Theodore Isaac Rubin, I'm sure it would come up. He would look, ask for what, you know, his books, because he's written a number of books. And uh, it would be one of those later books that he wrote. Because uh, uh, it, was, it was our idea that gave him the idea to write it. And, um, Gosh, would I give to see that film. So, and years later, I, because we had, were in contact just over that idea, uh, she actually, we had a phone call where I was able to, where she, she knew she was very sick. And uh, uh, I kind of, in a sense, said goodbye. Oh, man. I was just over the, over the telephone. Oh, man. And, uh, I mean, it was fine. I, I wasn't, you know, except I was... Devastated to hear her bad news, you know. Um, anyway, understandably, were you you two? It sounds like you remained, you know, friends uh, to some extent. At well, least. we did. No, we didn't keep it. You know, I I had cut it off because it was too much. Yeah. If I couldn't have, if I couldn't have that relationship, it had to come to an end. So we didn't contact each other for many, many, many years until sometime around the idea that we got this idea. And I don't, I don't remember how we, I even found her to contact her, but I'm sure I, I did mm. somehow. And we had this idea, and we thought it was a great idea. So anyway, and she was, by this time, as I say, happily married, so she wasn't holding any disappointment or grudge or whatever right. she might have felt at the time that we didn't continue our relationship after David and Lisa. Right, and neither were you two say, pining over each other for all those years? It's, no, uh, no, absolutely not. An no, organic not. Was, way of... Uh, I was very... I was very happily married uh, mm. at that time. You, so, you know, uh, there's there's something about her that, you know, from every shot, you know, I, I forget which actress I heard it said about, there are some whom it's impossible to get a bad angle of... And just the, the 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 simple and timeless beauty of Janet Margolin in that film, it, it's it, it's it's one of those things that you know I've joked. There's some women that they're just so beautiful in their own way that it almost hurts to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, she was in. Oh God. Who wrote, who, who was it, who, take the money and run? That was, um. Oh, Woody Allen. Woody, she was in, she, I think she was in, she was in the Woody Allen film, and I think that was the one. Yeah. Played the, played the wife. That's played right. The, I think, yeah. That's right. You know, oh, go on. That's all. Oh, I, I mean, I, I was just gonna say, not to, uh, change tracks, but, this is a true personal story of mine. When I was a little kid, I mean in single digits, my parents had the soundtrack LP for Franco Zeffirelli's 
Romeo and Juliet, and I stared right. at that cover photo of Olivia Hussey for I don't know how many hours of my boyhood. I thought she was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. And all I had was the album jacket. And that's a hundred percent true. So and this goes to the fact that you shot Black Christmas, which has become a cult right. classic, and yeah, you starred I, opposite I, Olivia Hussey in that movie. Yeah. And I, I here I am watching I'm thinking, gosh, you need not one but two women who for me, it hurts to look at, and he got to act with them both. <laughs> I, when I was a kid, like the age you're talking about, I don't know, eight or nine, whatever, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the woman, the actress that I felt that way about was Ingrid Bergman. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm still hung up on I'm still hung up on Audrey Hepburn, and I will be for the rest of my days. Oh yeah, well that, that's that's just going pretty well too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, I played her. I played Audrey right. Hepburn's father. The Jennifer Love film. Hewitt film. Yeah, my God, you know about everything. My God, <laughs> that's an obscure anyway <laughs> thing for me. But anyway, well, yeah. thanks. I mean. I, I, I do have a life. I, I don't want you to think I sit around Googling Cure Delay all afternoon. No, I just say, no, I think, you, I think you're an encyclopedia of film, what I'm getting, uh, you know, anyway. Well, no, you're too so, kind. So listen, um, I, uh, I have, I'm, I, we are isolating with um, my um, brother-in-law and his, um, his uh, granddaughter. They are isolating with us, and so I really probably should. But, but I, I don't mean I have to close this. But is there anything kind of questions that you had answered or hadn't gotten to ask me, or you know, because I probably should draw this to a close. No, you've you've been so kind and so generous with your time. What, we do have some questions, um, but I don't want to hurry through them now. Would it be uh, imposing to ask if we could just spend maybe another 45 minutes to an hour, say, next sure. Monday or Tuesday? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, again, I'm, I'm, you want to make this it's easier? You want to make it 1 o'clock on Tuesday, next Tuesday? Perfect. Stephen, lock it in. Locked. Locked in. Brilliant. Okay. okay. Uh, all okay. right, Stephen. Great. Nice meeting you, Stephen. Oh, nice meeting you, Kia. Thank you. And All right. uh, then we'll talk soon. Kier, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Okay. And uh, keep, keep well.
And so it is, friends, that we come to the end of part two of our discussion with Kier DeLay. But Kier will return in episode nine, The Rise of Hal. Ooh, ouch. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Lame joke. <clears throat> the Star Wars movie, I mean. <clears throat> I did, I did. I actually liked it a lot. So sue me. Um, in our next installment, we're going to hear from A.D. Bush, who worked on Full Metal Jacket, both in a military training capacity and as a performer. A.D. is a super swell guy, and it's a really fun episode. We look forward to bringing it to you very soon. Don't forget to subscribe to Kubrick's Universe on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you grab your tasty podcastables to go. Check out the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, the premier destination for Kubrick news and insights from experts and many members with direct connections to our favorite visionary filmmaker. My thanks to our producer, chief researcher, and all-around bundle of friendly fun, Stephen Rigg. Thanks also to Mark Lentz, James Marinaccio, Simone Odino, and Filippo Olivieri for their contributions behind the scenes. Lastly, we leave you with the sad news that someone forever linked to Kubrick's legacy has recently left us. I'm referring to Dame Vera Lynn, whose rendering of the song, We'll Meet Again, was not only featured at the end of Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, it was a song she made famous during World War II, entertaining the troops in Egypt, India, and Burma. They called her the Force's Sweetheart, and she enjoyed a long and happy career of over 75 years. In the year 2000, she was named the Briton who best exemplified the spirit of the 20th century. In 2017, at the ripe young age of 100, she became the first centenarian to ever have a top 10 album when her greatest hits compilation, Vera Lynn 100, rose to number three in the charts. She was still performing in early 2020. Incredible, beautiful, and totally true. I've put together and recorded my own little instrumental tribute to Dame Vera. Hope you like it. This is Jason Furlong saying thank you all for supporting our show. We really do appreciate it. Stay safe, everyone. We'll see you soon.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.